afternoon. How are we doing today? We're good? Yeah? Just got to see this a little bit. There we go. So for those who don't know me, my name is Charles. Uh, like Nino, I'm also originally from Brazil. So like always, like Nino always says, uh, you also notice in me some sort of an, an accent, and I hope you're okay with it. Uh, me and my wife, we've been members at Trails for about uh, two years. Actually, we've been attending Trails for, uh, I like to say, before its foundation, because it was before our anniversary, or when uh, the church was technically planted. So we've been attending Trails for basically all its existence. Um, Cassie and I, we also lead our small group, or sorry, our youth programs here at Trails. Um, that happens every other Friday um, here at at this church at 7 p.m. So if you are a parent of a youth or if you uh, are a youth, you're welcome to come. Uh, the ages are from 12 to 17 at 7 p.m. here at Trails. And this is going to start, actually we are starting back with our youth program um, from vacation, from school break, this coming Friday. So September, I think is the 9th, I believe so. So yeah, so as my good friend Yuri has just read, uh, we are in a series that approaches a theme from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a theme in which Paul portrays that born-again believers are living letters who are sent by Christ into a dying world. Paul teaches that immediately after their new birth, the believer is turned into a letter of Christ. And as Matt taught us last week, these letters are not meant to be kept in secret, uh, but they are meant to be read by all. That is their nature. They are not to be worthless letters that are not open, but they are to be brought and displayed to all nations. Therefore, there is no way a Christian would be able to hide his or her identity, since their new nature was made into a living letter, a living letter to a dying world. So the Great Commission is not an option but it's a simple reality of who they have become. As John MacArthur states, the Christian is many times the only Bible some people will ever read. So we should be always diligent on our work of having this epistle evidently displayed in bold letters to this world, showing what God has written in our hearts. So um, in case you have missed, we have going through this series letters to uh, living letters to a dying world which is basically dealing with the content of these letters what is written in them and I believe the most important thing about these sermons is to actually pay close attention and sit under God's word asking these questions asking yourselves am I one of these letters do I have these things written in my heart do I express in my life the truths that these letters carry? Am I one of those? So in case you have missed, uh, during our series so far, we have learned that these letters, we learned actually from Nino on his first sermon, that these letters are unashamedly passionate for the gospel. Last week we learned from Matt that these letters are also passionate about personal holiness. And next week, we're going to be learning from Aaron that this letter is also passionate about seeing other people affected by this gospel. And we were also taught that uh, all these things combined are to be displayed 
to all nations as a fulfillment of our great commission. But today we'll ponder one fundamental, I'm sorry, one foundational characteristic of these letters. We'll learn what I believe is the most important characteristic of this letter. We will seek to understand from Scripture what motivates their heart. What is their essence? In other words, we will step back and understand uh, what caused this letter to desire the gospel. What caused this letter or this person to strive after holiness? Or what caused this person to desire to see others saved? So today we will be displaying the essence of this letter sent by Christ. The sermon will be portraying Paul's meaning when he says that these letters were written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And my prayer is that you may be guided by the Spirit to analyze your own heart and to discern if you truly are one of these letters. Because there is no worse thing than a self uh, deceived a self-deceived unbeliever that they believe that they are Christians but actually not so let's be critics of our own hearts today so to bring to clarity what is the feel of this letter I would like to call your attention to the book of Romans chapter 2 verses 25 to 29 so if you can open with me to the book of Romans chapter 2 verses 25 to 29 We'll be extracting from uh, these verses what is the essence of this letter. So let's turn there with me and see what the Lord has to tell us about the essence of this beautiful letter sent by Christ into a dying world. I'm going to have on the screen here as well. So it says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised but keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. For no, for no one is a Jew who is merely one hourly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, sorry, there you go. So, um, with our youth, we are actually going through the book of Romans. And uh, we went through this text about nine months ago. And uh, I learned lots of things when I was teaching this text to our youth. The first thing I learned was that circumcision is an awkward word. Um, I didn't know that. So how it normally works, I ask kids to volunteer to read passages from, from Scripture. And uh, this was our passage. And then I asked one of our kids, hey, do you want to read? And the kid accepted, not knowing what they, would, they were about to encounter. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but the word circumcision comes up quite often. And uh, a text that took me probably 20, 30 seconds to read took them about three minutes. It was a really interesting moment, um, but um, it, it, it was interesting to, under, to know that uh, circumcision had that effect on our youth. And uh, after that, I learned also that 
we should address circumcision as the C word. So that's what I did through that uh, event. And uh, the kids actually pleaded with me to not explain because they knew what it meant. So I was like, okay, I took that as God's grace upon me. Um, it was, was quite interesting. But I hope we're a bit more mature today to take this. And uh, I hope I can address circumcision not as a C word, but as circumcision. So um, let's uh, expose our text here. Um, so as you can see, looking at our verse on the screen, our text requires a bit of a background because... We have this conjunction, for. So if you see on your text a conjunction for, it actually requires, it actually states, indicates that the text is part of a greater argument. There is a greater argument that is behind that text. So for the sake of time, I'm going to give you a quick sum up of the background. So the background of our text is basically a combination of, of, of the immediate theme uh, and the major theme of the book of Romans. The major theme of the book of, of, of the book of Romans is the major theme of uh, sorry the major theme of the book of Romans is the heart of the gospel is that the righteous shall live by faith. You can encounter that affirmation by Paul on chapter one verse twelve and chapter three verse twenty one, and and the immediate context the immediate um, theme is the theme that. Um, sorry, is the theme of the universal reign of sin. So our text is actually part of that. I'm going to explain a little, a little more. So when you're reading this whole section, you see that after briefly sharing about the righteousness of Christ as given to sinners, Paul wants his audience to understand that without it, no one will be saved. Thus after offering God good, uh, the good news, Paul had to show them their need of this amazing gift of God. And the best way to do that was by attacking their false securities of salvation. So the purpose of chapter 1, 18 to chapter 3, 20, which includes our passage, is to basically portray that sinners stand before God with no resource whatsoever, with no means of salvation, and with no security. So while Paul, while Paul is doing that, uh, in chapter 1, he attacks the, G the Gentiles' false security. And on chapter 2, up to chapter 3, he attacks the Jews' false security. So at the beginning of chapter 2, while attacking the Jews, Paul firstly argued that the possession of the law, and doubtly a great privilege, is of no value whatsoever if the one possesses the commands of God, fails to keep them. Since the Jews thought that they were different solely because they were given God's law, Paul removes this false security to prove them their need for Christ's sacrifice. However, by claiming that, Paul had to deal with the identity of the Jew. Especially after a statement that he made on chapter 2 verse 12. This statement here. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So by making this statement, Paul would have to answer to objections because Jews strongly believed their physical circumcision was what marked them as safe and out of, God's, out of the reach of God's wrath. So check with me some Jewish interpretations actually taken from uh, a Jewish commentary that was, uh, 
that was around Paul's time. So check with me quickly. So this one commentary is actually from a commentary in, um, in the books of Moses by a Jewish uh, rabbi. He says that circumcision saves from hell. That's a Jewish interpretation that was during Paul's time. Check a different one. God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. I have a third one here. No circumcised man will see hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter it. So again, this was a common mis or a common understanding of what circumcision meant. So that that's the reason why Paul had to destroy these false securities that they have. So to highlight the universal importance of the gospel, Paul would have to answer to objections that would come out of, out of this sort of understanding. Paul would have to answer to this objection. How can we Jews be treated as Gentiles even to the point of being in danger of the wrath of God when our circumcision marks us as belonging to God's chosen people? How is that possible? So to properly answer to that question and to show the Jewish problematic understanding about the, about the sufficiency and their physical circumcision, Paul uses a hypothetical situation in verse 25. He says, for indeed, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. And by value here, you got to uh, pay close attention to the word value because the word value, Paul is not deeming circumcision as being worthless. Because actually in chapter 3, he talks about what, what is the value of circumcision. Chapter 5, I believe, he also talks about the value of circumcision. But here, he has in mind value in the sense of salvation. In the sense of salvation. He has in mind salvation. So, uh, circumcision was, Paul is saying that circumcision was actually never designed to save anybody. In fact, that if you kept the law, if you, sorry, that if you did not keep the law, it is like you are not circumcised at all. Your sign is a simple fake, and it is supposed to be a constant reminder of what you lack spiritually. So look, this is a very big deal. Paul is saying that circumcision does not provide any righteousness in one's behalf. So here, we see that the failure to keep the law nullifies one's circumcision. And brings them to the same place where the Gentiles were. Outside of God's blessing. Outside of God's eternal blessing. Therefore, the Jew who breaks the law is no different than the Gentile. And thus, they need to repent and trust in Christ's work likewise. Again, Paul denies any efficacy of circumcision in shielding the Jew from God's wrath. My friends, circumcision was made by God, was a covenant made by God with Abraham and his descendants to portray a sign, not an automatic spiritual reality. There's no doubt circumcision was a symbolic sign of the sinfulness of man that was passed from generation to generation. However, as important as circumcision was, the right has no spiritual power whatsoever. 
the sign was supposed to lead them to something greater and not to find its accomplishment within it. But how do we know that Old Testament circumcision was actually not meant um, to bring salvation to the Jews, as the Jews thought? I mean, we know that, first of all, because Paul teaches the opposite of it. But based on what? Paul was also bound to the Old Testament, wasn't he? He had to justify his position based on the Old Testament teachings. And for the sake of time, I will give you two texts of Jeremiah. Uh, there is many other texts. There is in Deuteronomy, there is Ezekiel, there is Isaiah. Uh, but during this week, Nino said my sermon was too long, so I had to cut it out. So, uh, yeah, ho hopefully, hopefully he can send to you guys uh, during our uh, small groups. I told you, man. So we're going to have it here. So uh, we're going to have Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. So this is an Old Testament interpretation. Nino actually just talked about this one, which I was a bit sad. <laughs> I want to surprise you guys. But there we go, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. It says, circumcise your heart, yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my forth my worth go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that the very opposite of what those rabbis believed? I mean, who lives in Judah and Jerusalem? Aren't those Jews? And are they supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day? And what happened if they were not circumcised on the eighth day? Weren't they supposed to be kicked out of the city? So what does that mean? That means that those people were actually circumcised. But look at this. Their, circum their physical circumcision would not prevent or keep them from hell. So their circumcised circumcision would not keep them from hell. So this is basically the very opposite of what those rabbis was t were teaching, isn't it? But I mean, some of them could say this is a, just a, a figure of speech. You know, and actually the circumcision of heart uh, means actually the circumcision of the flesh. So let's turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 29. I'm going to have it here as well. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 25. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all of those who are what? Merely. Who are circumcised merely in the flesh. So that would not be an argument, right? You see, circumcision was not supposed to be merely physical. The sign was to lead, was to transcend that and lead to display their need. And I'm positive that these texts, along with the other ones I mentioned before, are what was in Paul's mind when he was making his argument, when he was developing or kind of developing his argument on verse 26 to 27 in Romans. Turn there with me. Uh, Romans 2, 26, 27. I'm going to have it here again. He says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but breaks the law. So to clarify a point that he made on Verse 25, Paul poses a hypothetical situation. Paul is hypothetically suggesting that if a man who was uncircumcised kept the law, he would be considered circumcised because he would be considered 
clean. But why do I say hypothetical situation? Well, Paul, he does not have in mind that a man is actually able to keep the law. And you would see that in his in a big point that he makes on Romans chapter 3 verse 11 when he says that none is righteous, no, not one. So Paul's point here is not to say that someone would be able to keep the law, but he wanted to bring a, 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 hypothetical, a hypothetical situation here. So hypothetically speaking, if a person who, was who has never been circumcised kept the law, he would have been considered circumcised by God. But since that is not possible, Paul is simply showing their position before God in spite of their covenant privilege. So in verse 27, Paul says that God will judge the Jew based on the Gentile. And that is not to um, assume that the Gentile will actually take the role of a judge because God is the judge. But the Gentile will, will assume this role of a witness for prosecution. What does that mean? I mean, I'm going to have an, I have an illustration for you. Imagine you work for MPI. And uh, I actually don't know if that's an MPI work, but probably. Imagine you work for MPI. And your job is to install stop signs. Then one day you get a letter from MPI and it's a fine. And you did not stop at one of the stop signs you installed. Um, you go to court, you want to fight that. You're like, come on, I'm the one who installs this thing. So you go and, you, and that's your argument before the judge. You're like, you know, I'm the one who installs those stop signs. So what's up with this fine? Right now imagine the judge brings a person who does not have the knowledge of stop signs that you have, who does not know where every stop sign was placed, and he brings that person in front of you, and that person has a clear driver's license. They don't have any fines. They never, they always stopped at the stop signs. So that person, clear driver's record, is a living testimony of your guilt. And that's exactly, exactly what Paul's point is. The physical circumcision, the sign of spiritual removal of sin, was designed to be a sign for the Jews to follow also. But just like the Gentiles, they were both unwilling to do it. So Paul is bringing here everyone to bottom level. Nobody has extra benefits not even the Jews. For as Paul says before, uh, later on, God shows no partiality. Everybody is heading to destruction, being led by their uncircumcised hearts. So everyone desperately needs their hearts to be circumcised. So contrasting the negatives with the positives, Paul is going to navigate us to verse 28 to 29. And uh, he's going to explain what is the essence of the one who is truly circumcised. The true Christian. Go with me to the, last, the very last two verses of this chapter. Verse 28 to 29. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one hourly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart 
by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So turning to verse um, 28 to 29, we see Paul summarizing his destruction of the Jews' false trust. At this point, he explains why the Jew, regardless of their external state, are under God's judgment. Here Paul claims that a real Jew is not based on, on, their, out, on their outward, but in their heart. Exactly like the Old Testament has always affirmed. And the scripture has always taught that. Man looks the outward appearance, but God looks at where? The heart. And starting with the negatives again, Paul tells them what it means to be a real Jew. And what kind of circumcision is authentic. And there's an interesting fact here. Uh, there's a little bit of a play with words here by Paul. Because the word Jew came, comes from the name Judah, which means to offer praise. So basically what Paul is saying here is that the real Jew, the real praiser, is the one whose circumcision happens in the heart and not something merely external. Isn't that what Christ says? True, the true worships, worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. And those who had experienced it and received, those who had experienced the circumcision of the heart, they will receive their praise from whom? From God. It is a very simple thing to impress man, but not to impress God. Religion and religious service, to be accepted by God, they must follow the heart. But how does that come to happen? How can one impress God? How can I circumcise my own heart? How can I change the sinful desires of my flesh? How can I change the nature of my wretched heart? Isn't that the real issue here? How can I will good? Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leper his spots? Then also you can do good who are used to do evil. How can that happen? How can one change his own hearts, my friends? The Bible states that by nature we are both incapable and unwilling to change our own hearts. We have not the power to circumcise our own hearts. How can we submit to this requirement from God? What shall we do? So turn with me to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Nino just read that for us. Deuteronomy verse 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 6. It says, And the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. My friends, thanks be to God that what He requires, He provides. God is the one who must perform it. He is the surgeon of hearts. He has to change our dispositions from inside out. And that's exactly what He promised by the Spirit and not by the letter. 
See, we will truly only, we will only truly want and desire him when our hearts are changed by him. So back to our theme, no one who does not have a new heart will be a true letter of Christ. No one who is not circumcised in their hearts will desire to see the lost saved. No one who is not circumcised in their hearts will truly desire holiness. And I'm talking about true desire and not a man-made one. Why do I say man-made one? Because people can often fake desires temporarily though. For instance, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, after the famous revivals of the 18th century, realized that a great number of those converts, those converts from the great revival, had forced themselves into Christianity. Probably due to fear, political positions, morals, family influences, and so on. And their affections to the Lord did not last more than a year. Thus, Edwards observed that the real Christianity is the everlasting work of the Spirit that does not fade away because it transforms and continuously attacks the disposition of man's heart. He concluded that a true Christian is the one who possesses a holy affection. True affections are a result of the saving work of the Spirit that gives us a new sense of heart. Thus, if we want to know what kind of heart we have, we need to look to our affections, to our desires, to our dispositions. So this is the thing. By forcing yourself into doing certain things will not make you a letter of Christ if you do not have this pierced heart where is the letter written isn't it in the heart so if you do not have this regenerated heart you actually have nothing written at it at all your letter is non-existent in fact the writing of the letter is what circumcised your heart as you can see that it's impossible for one to be saved and not to be a letter when they are born again, they are born again as letters of Christ. So my friends, do not be fooled that by forcing yourselves into reading a couple of verses of scripture a day or by praying before meals that that will make you a Christian. Not even the preaching of the gospel will make you a Christian. Only God can make you a Christian and he makes it by cutting it through your heart with his word. The salvation accomplished by the cross pierced Christ's hands and feet. And if you are placed in him, he brings you back 2,000 years to Calvary and pierces you right through your heart. And this is when the transformation comes. This is when the writing becomes evident. God not only declares you just, but he makes you one. Or like, we, or like we like to put to our youth, he not only changed your great ass into an A+, but he turns you into a nerd. He, want, he makes you want and willing to study. That's what God does with you. 
He not only declares us just, but he makes us to seek after holiness in an untiring manner for his glory, not for others to see. The real circumcised heart loves and hates anything that God loves and hates. There's a reason why the Christian hates sin is not because people will judge them. No, that's not the reason. The reason why Christians hate and hate sin is because their hearts were pierced by God's word and they're sensitive to the things that God hates. The reason why the Christian read God's word is not because they it's not primarily because they can argue with their Christian liberal friends, but it's because they thirst and hunger for it. It is what satisfies their souls. The reason why a Christian wants to go to church, it is not because the government allows or doesn't allow it. It is because God's people are there. And since God loves his people, guess what? So does the Christian. A pierced heart is the main sign of a true letter. It is its seal. It displays that the work of the Holy Spirit is in place. This is not solely based on what you do, but on why you do what you do. What led you to do those things? Since it is from a pierced heart that the true dispositions to love the gospel, to strive after holiness, and to love the lost flow from. But if this is not an effect, is not the result of the pierced heart, you end up like the Jews, trusting on a fake seal. Performing simple obligations here and there, and not performing a delight that flows from a pierced heart. And in the end, it will not matter at all whatever you do. Because all those things merely display the outside while the heart is not circumcised. Which means that you're not a letter at all. So my friends, real Christians do not go to church to be a good influence on their kids. Although it may be a result of it. Real Christians do not read their Bible for the sake of knowledge, although all the mysteries of the world can be found there. Real Christians do all those things because they love God. They had their hearts changed and were taught by God's word about all the things God loves. And thus they pursue it because their hearts are sensitive and hunger and thirst for godliness. Why do you think a Christian is a slave to righteousness? It's because their, their minds and emotions are held captive to it. They love doing what is good because God loves it. And God made their hearts sensitive to it. So if you are here for the first time, and uh, if you're not a Christian, I pray that the preaching of His word may cut your heart today. And that their affections of your heart may be changed, enabling you to love him and accept his son's sacrifice. And that within that, you may join the Hallelujah Choir composed by Christ's letters. Letters were once enemies with no affections to the Lord. 
but who are now close friends with sensitive hearts to love him. But for those who know their hearts were pierced, but they feel like after time their hearts lost some of its sensibility, I would actually like to remind you that your heart is supposed to grow the closer, the sensibility of your heart is supposed to grow the closer you get to God. I would like to remind you that your heart is supposed to get more and more sensible the closer you are to Him. The real Christian is never satisfied until the race is over. Our affections toward God have to grow every time we read Scripture and we are shaped by Him. In Ephesians 4, it actually says that in the opposite manner from the unbeliever who add layers to their hearts, the Christian removes the layers from their hearts. They grow in the sensibility of their hearts by the Spirit. But let me warn you that if you're reading a scripture for the sake of knowledge alone, this is not going to do it. You must submit yourself to it. You must point the sword of God toward your heart and pray like David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You must approach God's sword as God's sword, not as a butter knife that can merely affect the surface and not the heart. God's sword is supposed to pierce our hearts, our affections. And not once, but continuously. How are the dispositions of your hearts today? Since God loves the, salvations, the salvation of the lost, and if our hearts are aligned with Him, are we eagerly proclaiming the gospel to the world? Are we excited to be living letters everywhere God brings us. Stephen Lawson says that the Christian's greatest happiness was to know Christ. Now his second greatest happiness is to make him known. Their hearts long for souls to be saved. And like Jonathan Edwards pointed earlier, the Christian heart does not change according to environment because it is not a surface circumcision that gets desensitized with time. The Christian heart thus is eager to proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. The Christian is not a ladder based on environment. The Christian is a ladder based on what is in their heart. He is a ladder because Christ has written in their hearts. And if you doubt this, go back to Acts and see how those people lived after being pierced in their hearts. I would like to finish the sermon today with a, with a poem that uh, actually conveys this picture um, that we are portraying here. This poem talks about uh, Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord of Righteousness. Um, this poem is based off of Jeremiah. And this poem was written by a Christian who, like any other Christian, had the dispositions of his heart changed. This poem portrays the before and after. And you're going to see during the, the, the reading of the poem uh, that his dispositions changed drastically to our Lord. So I want you to note the different disposition of his heart and compare to yours. Pay close attention to this beautiful transformation 
that is supposed to be the most prominent characteristic of the Christian letter in the world. Let me read to us. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger. I felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sikenu was nothing to me. I often with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wide measure and John's simple page. But even when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sikenu seemed nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that row, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet though, yet thought not my sins had nailed to the tree, Jehovah Sikenu, it was nothing to me. But when free, a great, free grace awoke me by flight from on high, when then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self I could see. Jehovah Sikenu, my Savior must be. My terrors are vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fears banished with bone as I came. To drink at the fountain like given and free. Jehovah Sikenu is all things to me. Jehovah Sikenu, my treasure and cost. Jehovah Sikenu, I will never be lost. In thee I shall conquer by flood or by field. My cable, my anchor, by breastplate and shield. Even treating the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God set me free, Jehovah Sikenu, my death song shall be. Let's pray.